Well, beloved listeners, it's hard to imagine a world without Agatha Christie. It is said she's the best-selling novelist of all time, outsold only by Shakespeare and the Bible, and of course her play The Mousetrap will run for all eternity. But despite producing 80 books over her lifetime, she opted to describe herself, and I quote, as an ordinary housewife. It's just one of the many misconceptions that the queen of crime uh, spun to hide her true self from the world. So here to reveal the real Agatha is historian, broadcaster and author Lucy Worsley. And Lucy, you probably don't remember this, but we last chatted on the program 12 years ago and one of our topics I cannot forget because... They were Queen Victoria's undies. That's exactly the kind of topic that I love talking about, Philip. I, <laughs> I, I love, I love those funny little details about history that can take people back into the past sometimes. Well, you found a great many of those for your latest book, Agatha Christie, a very elusive woman. Uh, why another book? There's been a few on Agatha. Well. I felt that there was uh, the opportunity to come at her story as a historian, which is I am, which is what I am. And I wanted to tell her story as a woman who lived through the 20th century. So she was born in 1890 under Queen Victoria. And by the time she died in 1976, she was as famous as the Rolling Stones. And and you said a minute ago, Philip, you said that it's always said that she's been outsold only by uh, Shakespeare and the Bible. And what gets me every time I hear that is that unlike um, Shakespeare and, well, I suppose, I suppose God, Agatha Christie is a woman. You know, she achieved her amazing achievements in a world that was then made by men. So I wanted to look at the ways in which she kind of secretly broke the rules for women, which she certainly did, although she kept pretty quiet about it. She was born into affluence, wasn't she? Uh, She grew up in a quite substantial Victorian villa. Yes, that's right. She lived a life. She had an idyllic childhood. She was greatly loved by her wealthy parents. There were servants. There were there was lots of food. She always loved food. It's one of the things <laughs> that I feel I have in common with her. She really loved cream. And later in life, she didn't enjoy the taste of alcohol. So if she wanted to celebrate something, she didn't have a glass of champagne. She drank a glass of neat cream <laughs> instead. Would you believe it? <laughs> but this this whole um, this whole idyll in, in Torquay, the town where she lived, it came to an end because the family lost its money and she lost her father. So uh, there was, there was, you know, there was a canker in the Garden of Eden. I didn't realise she had no formal education. It's so interesting, you know. Um, One of the things that explains a lot about her is the fact that she was born in 1890, but she lived for so long that she was almost living in a different world when it was the 1970s. And the, the values of her Victorian childhood was was still with her and made her seem kind of out of step in the later part of the 20th century. But her parents believed that it was her destiny to get married. And if you educated a girl, it might actually stop her from achieving the purpose of her life, which which was marriage. So Agatha was basically an autodidact. Um, <laughs> there was a funny moment when her, her nanny came to her mother and said, I'm awfully sorry, ma'am, but Miss Agatha 
has taught herself to read. I think that's absolutely marvellous. And she described the philosophy you're describing as you were waiting for the man. And when the man came, he would change your entire life. Now, she never described herself as a feminist, well, for pretty obvious reasons, but uh, you say that the way she lived her life says something very different. I think that if you look at Agatha Christie's actions rather than her words, then you get a very different impression of what her what her motivations may have been. And do you know, in the early part of her career, in the 1920s, she would make surprisingly confident statements about her ambition, what she wanted to achieve, how the fact that she liked being a working woman, a working mother even. But then, mm, then we come to the notorious year of 1926, by which time she was already a famous and celebrated writer. But in 1926, everything changed for her. And after 1926, uh, a year in which she got this huge public shaming, that's the way I read it, a huge public shaming. After that point, you never hear any more statements of ambition from her. You get this whole, oh, I'm I'm a housewife. Um, I'm just a married woman. Um, my success just sort of happened to me by accident. I can't really explain it at all. She worked well into old age, as you point out, and uh, celebrated life after menopause through Miss Marple. Well, <laughs> one of the reasons that uh, my favourite Agatha Christie character of a lot of them is Miss Mar is Miss Marple, is because I think that Miss Marple stands for Agatha herself. So Miss Marple emerges in a novel for the first time in. Uh, 1930. And by 1930, Agatha had gone through a, a terrible incident. What happened to her in 1926? I'm teasing about what this might have been. But by 1930, she had remarried. She was with her second husband and she had sort of found her, found her stride, I suppose. She'd entered into her power and now she was ready to create Miss Marple, who is an independent woman. And Everybody overlooks her. Of course they do, because she looks like just a little old lady. But to underestimate Miss Marple is kind of like to underestimate Agatha Christie. You will come in time to realise that that's the smartest person in the room. Let's walk it back, Lucy, and tell us about the tipping point, this particular year you keep alluding to. Well, in 1926, um, this is the best known thing that happened in Agatha Christie's life to most people. It's the thing that they know about her after her writing, if they know anything at all. In 1926, she got caught up in a real life crime drama. It sounds like the sort of thing that you get from the pen of Agatha Christie herself. And what happened in 1926 is that she disappeared. She vanished there was a huge national manhunt for her that lasted for 11 days. And at the end of the 11 days, she was discovered living under a false name in a hotel in Harrogate, which is in Yorkshire, which is 200 miles away from where she was living at the time in, in Berkshire. And at the time when she was discovered, this narrative sprang up amongst journalists. The narrative was that she was a bad person, that she'd done this as a publicity stunt 
to sell books, that she caused an awful lot of trouble by selfish behavior, or, and this is another version of the story, and I can see the attraction of this one, this story goes that she disappeared deliberately, she'd hidden herself away in order to frame her cheating husband for having murdered her. She wanted to pin <laughs> the murder of herself on him. But that's, neither of those things are are true. And what I, what annoys me, Philip, is that still in the world today, many people believe that narrative, that in 1926, she disappeared deliberately as some kind of a trick. And it's not true at all. And Agatha in the 20s actually explained to the world what had happened to her. But the thing is, the world didn't want to listen because the story that she told is one that's hard to hear. It makes people uncomfortable. She actually said what I had in 1926 when I disappeared was a really distressing incident of mental illness. I was experiencing suicidal thoughts. All I wanted to do was to get away from my cheating husband, the pressure of my life, and to form a new identity for myself. So, you know, People talk about the mystery of the disappearance. It isn't a mystery at all. Agatha herself explained what had happened. It's just that her explanation wasn't one that people wanted to hear. Her work during the First World War is crucial to her and our understanding of her. Yes, I totally agree with you. And part of the reason that people didn't want to hear that Agatha Christie had had these mental health issues in 1926 is because of this big debate that was going on in the 1920s about the nature of shell shock, which was a form of trauma experienced by many um, of the combatants in World War I, except that some people thought they were shirking. You see, there was always this doubt about whether the shell-shocked were really ill or whether they were trying it on. And Agatha, during the war, sort of stepped off the expected course through life, I suppose. Uh, during the war, she had by then married, but because her husband was serving in France, she wasn't able to live a normal married lady's life. She had to go on living at home with her mother and to support the war effort, she started to work as a nurse. Now, for an Edwardian young married lady to be working, it was just unheard of. So she was in this hospital earning money and doing really difficult, dirty things. You know, she assisted at operations without any proper training, it has to be said. And she had to do things like taking an amputated leg down to the hospital furnace to be burnt. She was having these difficult, dark experiences. And then, like all of the nurses in World War I, I think, she had to go home to her mama and not say, not say that she'd done these things because people were keen to contain the horror of war. And I think this is essential for a detective writer because as a writer, she'll become obsessed with the masks that people wear, the way that people keep up a facade when inside themselves they're experiencing something very different. In every one of Agatha's stories, you know, there's somebody who appears to be respectable, nice, smiling, trustworthy, but actually that person has a secret, that person has the capacity to be a murderer. Most of us are aware that she also trained as a pharmacist assistant, uh, where of course she became familiar with poisons. Yes, the war itself, I feel, was a kind of a macro reason that she became a detective novelist. But when she moved from the wards of the hospital 
into a new job in the hospital dispensary. This was the, the micro reason. This was a tipping point because while she was working in the dispensary, it was her job to mix up medicines, which was very responsible work because if you made a tiny slip, you could turn a medicine from life-saving into something that was poisonous and the other thing, as well as this awareness, knowledge of poisons and toxicity, the other thing that her time in the dispensary gave her was uh, empty hours because she would sit there waiting for the prescriptions to come in. And during these empty hours, she got out a notebook and she started to write. And uh, it makes sense when you think about it. She would be writing her first detective novel. In this year, 1916, uh, it's called The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and it features a death by poisoning. And it also features a young lady character who works in the dispensary of a wartime hospital. There's quite a lot of Agatha's own life that she's woven into her books and stories. Lucy, she rose to fame quite quickly after the war. What was it about her books that were so appealing to audiences at the time? Quite interesting that um, she she took a little time to get published. So her her first book didn't actually come out until 1920. During the war, there'd been paper shortages. She was an unknown author. But by 1920, I think that publishers were starting to think, "Hey, we are ready now for a new type of author." And when she when she got her first publishing deal, she said. Oh, of course, I'll publish my work under a male pseudonym. That's what women have to do, isn't it? But the publisher actually said, no, you should use your own name, Mrs. Agatha Christie. And I think the publisher was aware that since 1918, um, some women had had the vote. Uh, women like Agatha had been out in the workplace for the first time. Um, they were ready for stories by women. And also what Agatha's stories do, um, they feature a lot of female characters. And people were ready for a form of entertainment that would take them away from, you know, the, the realities of war. Sometimes this 1920s detective fiction is called the literature of convalescence. And it was just the sort of thing literally to read in bed if you were wounded and if you wanted to get better. And also because it took you out of yourself, it engaged you, but it didn't um, super challenge you unless you were the sort of person who could read the critique of society that's buried in Agatha's works. It could, it could distract you from the horrors of war. It's interesting that... Uh she thought she'd have to publish under a male pseudonym. It was so common at the time in Australia. Some of our great women writers like Henry Handel Richardson had to, uh, had to follow that example. Now, we should remember that she wrote things other than crime fiction. She wrote poetry and she was also a playwright. Yes, she was extremely prolific in all sorts of different genres. But obviously, <laughs> she, she discovered quite quickly that what sold best was Poirot. And uh, although there's lots to like about Poirot, he did become a bit of a milestone around her neck. She said later on, oh, he's a bit of a pain, isn't he, Poirot? You know, I am the great detective. He's so full of himself the whole time. And she also wrote what she called her thrillers, which um, are kind of spy stories, much less well known today. And then she also wrote, and this is really interesting, 
a, a whole series of books which aren't detective uh, fiction or, or thrillers. They're kind of like um, literary fiction. And they are about women's lives, really, women's motives, what they think about the world. And she published them under a pseudonym, a pseudonym uh, which is Mary Westmacott. And these all started to be published after 1926, after her breakdown and after she'd received psychiatric help, treatment, psychoanalysis, actually. And I think that her doctors were saying, look, you're a writer. You can write yourself better by telling the story of your life in what are actually semi-autobiographical works of fiction. And the people who knew her best said, look, if you want to know who Agatha Christie really was, go and read those Mary Westmacott books. That was her way of telling us, although she did it in a very devious way. Are they still in print? Yes, yes. A lot of people are still interested in them, not because they're great works of literature, but because for what they reveal about Agatha herself. And it's so it's so interesting, isn't it, that by the time she died, her name wasn't Agatha Christie, because she divorced that guy. It wasn't Mary Westmacott. That had always been a made-up name. By the time she died, she was actually called Mrs. Max Mallowan. And these these are the ways in which she protected herself after that public shaming that she got in 1926. I'm very glad she uh, met and married Max because that leads us into the archaeological novels, you know, the Death on the Nile and books like that. Yes, after she had got divorced from the cheating rat of a first husband, uh, she decided to make a fresh start in life to get right away. And she went to rather an unusual place to <laughs> to begin her new life. She went to Iraq. She went on this rather adventurous solo trip. Uh, <laughs> and now she was a divorced woman and she began to... Uh, experienced all kinds of overtures to her. Um, people started proposing marriage. She got invited by one Italian gentleman to a night of pleasure while she was on the on the journey. And she put him off, Philip, by saying that as an English woman, she was naturally frigid. <laughs> that worked. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> the aforementioned Max was an archaeologist. Now, let's let's move on because we're running out of time. One thing you acknowledge is that her books contain quite abhorrent views on race and class. This has to be confronted, doesn't it? Mm, yes, like many of the writers of the so-called so-called golden age of detective fiction, there are attitudes there that her readers would have subscribed to about race and class that just aren't acceptable today. And I do find sometimes young people reading Christie for the first time say, oh, I, I, I don't like this. It makes me uncomfortable. But, you know, as a historian, I would say that in fact, you have to read this stuff. You have to know what very large numbers of British and American people believed about the world in the 20s, the 30s and onwards, because, you know, it's left its traces in the world that we live in today. So I think that it's it, it's quite it's quite complicated to discuss in the work of Agatha Christie because her work sort of uses stereotypes. She tricks you into thinking this is this is the way the world is. And sometimes that's a positive thing. 
Sometimes she tricks you into thinking, oh, a little old lady has got nothing to offer to society. Miss Marple obviously does. Hercule uh, Poirot, he's, he's a Belgian refugee. He's got a foreign accent. He's got a funny moustache. He's not been to public school. He has got nothing to offer society, but then you realise that he does. Um, but sometimes she uses those stereotypes in a way that jars, that, that doesn't still work today. But, you know, that's not a reason to shut your eyes and go tut-tut. <laughs> Let's not wait another 12 years before your next appearance, Lucy. I've been talking to uh, Lucy Worsley, Chief uh, Curator at Historic Royal Palaces, and we've been discussing her latest book, Agatha Christie, a very elusive woman, published in Australia by Hachette. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.